Today's program is brought to you by Juniors. You have not really lived until you've had cheesecake at Juniors. For more information, visit juniorscheesecake.com. I'm Erica Wise, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the main course on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I am Alexis McLaughlin, your host, and very excited to have in studio with me April Wachtel. April is a 20-year veteran of the restaurant and cocktail industry, and we're here to talk a little bit about her most recent project, which is Swig and Swallow. Thanks so much for having me. Hi. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Swig and Swallow is your most recent project. You are the founder and CEO, Mm -hmm. and it's a really interesting kind of concept. Thank you. So I guess we'll just dive right in if you want to tell us a little bit about... Uh, what you what you guys do? Yeah, so um, Swig and Swallow it's a cocktail batching delivery service. Um, we are serving the uh, five boroughs in New York City. So basically, what we do is it's business to business, and we take um, custom cocktail recipes and we scale them for events of every size. We don't add the alcohol, um, but we do tell our clients how much alcohol to add to each vessel. Can you explain cocktail batching for? Folks that maybe have an experience, yeah, yeah, because yeah, yeah, it's, it's sort of—is it a newer concept? I've only come across it in the last five years. Hmm. I, you know, I actually don't know kind of what the origin is. Like, I don't know what the timeline is of the first person batching. I assume that this dates back to really when people started preparing punches, and this is—we're talking hundreds of years ago. Um, but the the idea is that you add all the elements of the beverage in one large quantity, and then you're able to, um, you know. I guess, pour individual servings um, off from that. So in kind of the contemporary times, what you use this for is when you're throwing a large event, for example, and you have a couple of featured cocktails or multiple featured cocktails, uh, it is very difficult without knowing the skill of the bartenders, without knowing the venue itself. It's very difficult to bring new custom cocktail recipes to the venue and say, hey, I want you to make this six-ingredient cocktail you know, for large volumes of people very quickly and get it right. Yeah, consistently, so, which exactly, is always a problem. Exactly. So for consistency purposes, what people typically do, and this could be bartenders, it could be consultants, or it could be you know, consulting groups where they hire a bunch of bartenders to come help them do this, is you'll batch all the ingredients together, including alcohol, fresh juices, custom syrups, etc., into massive vats, and then from there you separate that off and distribute it into carafes or into um, you know, liter bottles with speed pourers and things for, for individual service. It's kind of surprising to me that this service hasn't really been popular or really exists before. It, because essentially what you're doing is is you make a premix, you know, everything needed, like ready to go, ready to pour mm-hmm. drink. Mm-hmm. And then there's no more work needed. Yeah, well, I mean, I think if you kind of just look at the whole beverage industry, you see there's ready to serve drinks, which are... You know, either there's a lot of preservatives or they're, uh, you know, the mixers themselves have zero connection with. So if it says like, or, you know, orange, ready to serve orange drink, 
um, the chances are that there's actual orange in there is very low, right? These are like shelf stable <laughs> products. There's like zero refrigeration. It's like, you know, it'll be fine for a hundred years on the shelf. Um, so you see that end of the spectrum where it's very common, right? Um, and then on this end of the spectrum, again, you see within the cocktail world, within the world of people who actually care about fresh products, you do see people doing this for every single event. Um, I also have been curious why somebody has not started a service like ours where we operate from a commercial kitchen uh, and then, again, batch all the product there and then deliver it to the venue. Um, so I'm not entirely sure why it hasn't existed thus far, but I would say that in my experience actually throwing this type of event to be able to minimize, um, you know, the opportunity for error that occurs typically, again, with organizing a zillion deliveries from different vendors who are delivering, you know, for, let's just say a daiquiri, some people are delivering limes and some people are delivering sugar. And if one of those deliveries gets held up, all of a sudden you're unable to batch these cocktails and all of a sudden you're hours behind and then you're not prepared when your guests come and then chaos ensues. So, um, so for me, you know, in part, this was, I started this because of my own experiences needing a service like this and wondering why it didn't exist. Yeah, you have, I mean, you obviously come to this uh, conversation with a lot of experience and, and knowledge. How is that translated? I mean, you you obviously have the the drink down and creating mm -hmm. the you know creating different recipes. Mm -hmm. How is that translated into starting a business? Hmm. Um, well, so maybe if I just say a teeny bit about the various experiences that I've had, then oh, I can please kind of incorporate it. Um, so I you know I've been in food and beverage for about twenty years. Uh, 17 of those were in restaurants. 12 of those 17 were bartending. I've also been a buyer, you know, bar manager, beverage director before. Um, and so knowing that side of the business has been certainly very helpful, especially as calculating costs for this sort of thing. Um, I also worked for spirits companies for a number of years. And so I think understanding the expectations that the spirits clients and the PR agencies and such have is really helpful. Um, what else? Also, um, you know, I've been teaching cocktail classes for about five years. So at Astor Center, Institute of Culinary Education, Haven's Kitchen, Murray's Cheese, and, and uh, a chef demo kitchen called Audrey Claire Cook in Philadelphia. So pulling together that consumer conversation where people are constantly, you know, saying, oh, I, I absolutely want to make these at home. And then you say, oh, well, you know, you've got to have like a lime available. And they're like, but I don't squeeze it. You know? <laughs> I think, I think seeing, being able to see that perspective has been really helpful informing, you know, kind of how I'm, I'm trying to sculpt this, this brand. Um, and I've definitely made some mistakes so far. So, <laughs> so that's good. That's good too. But again, it's just, it's an iterative process. And, um, you know, I think, I think being able to bounce the idea off friends, even as a single founder, but being able to bounce these ideas off people and these various elements of this, this community has certainly been helpful to again to sculpting this company. What has been what do you what has been your greatest challenge in starting a business? It is it has definitely definitely been doing this alone. Um, I now I do now have a partner, um, Cocktail King and Logistics, um, but that's more on an executional level. So still the the kind of um, you know the brand building and the vision aspect is all is all me and. I can definitely say doing this in a vacuum. Sometimes you're like, am I absolutely insane right now? Because I might be. And I don't actually know until I get somebody's reaction. So I think that's been, that's been very challenging. Um, and 
as part of that kind of on a more practical level, some days you look at your to-do list and everything is incredibly important. And I think everybody in every job knows that to be a reality. Um, but it can definitely be, um, mobilizing is like the wrong word for it, but it can definitely present another type of challenge when you say, there's 25 things on this to-do list, and I don't know which one is going to get me to a better place or to a, um, a more advantageous place the quickest. And so you just kind of put your head down and you just try to bust through all of it. Um, just, you know, again, hoping that there will be a uh, an obvious way to get feedback about that in, like, in, you know, in a couple of days, maybe in a week, maybe a couple of weeks. Has there been anything that's really surprised you that you found that you enjoyed that you didn't know before? Um, about which aspect? I guess just, you know, starting a, starting a business, building a brand, because this is, you know, it's more than just the logistics of, mm-hmm. of operating a, a business, which it sounds like you have a lot of experience with, you know, on the back end, mm-hmm. but you're now, you're now building an entire brand, mm-hmm. uh, visuals. I know that the logo design you did yourself yeah. without any background. <laughs> How is diving into that? It seems daunting to say the least well you know that that's actually i i do think that has been the most rewarding part of this is like when i when i'm actually identifying okay i need a new logo or i need to you know build a website that communicates x y and z being able to see the project from again from concept to i guess really to product whichever whichever product again in this case i'm talking about the website or the logo um i I think being able to see that project from from start to finish has been incredibly rewarding as well as the fact that in that in the process of executing that project you've acquired that skill which you'll never fully forget um, even if it's out of practice so that has been really amazing like I knew nothing about photography I'm teaching myself about photography to showcase you know what I think this product actually is so it can produce really beautiful drinks that's hard for people to conceptualize when you know they just see an image of our jug as people (laughs) are outing alcohol you know it's like it's tough for people to see it without you showing it to them what do you mean jug will you describe like how the drink actually gets to the person or when when they order what exactly are they ordering and what, what gets delivered how do they use it right so um so basically the the service that we provide um you know, people will say, hey, I have an event Tuesday at 6 p.m. There's 100 people coming. What do I need to do? Um, or I need cocktails. And you say, okay, well, how many cocktails do you want? So there's a consultation portion. How many cocktails do you want? Um, this is what we would guesstimate for consumption. And then we'll, we can either select from existing recipes. We can create custom recipes uh, if people would like us to do so. Uh, or if they have provided us with a recipe, we can take that and scale it. And ultimately what they get is they're going to get uh, jugs that are they're basically half full. It depends, obviously, on the proportion of the cocktail. So you can add the booze. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, so one of the biggest challenges about actually, uh, you know, batching large quantities of drinks at these various venues is you have to bring your own cameras with your, your own large containers to batch all the alcohol into. And I can tell you that this is probably the the, the one very stupid little detail that, that messes everybody up uh, if you're unprepared on this is you don't have enough vessels. And then so all of a sudden you've got you know, six giant vessels perfectly is it, filled. Go is a Cambro a bucket style? Yeah, is that what I call a, a Lexan? Uh, yes. Yeah. So it's basically, it's basically like a square bucket. At least the ones that we use are square. They also have 
round ones. Yeah. So um, it's like filling it to the top with your with your juice portion of your booze drink and not leaving room for the booze. Exactly. Also, that doesn't to get it out of a Canberra doesn't really seem it's not easy for service at all. Correct. Okay. So yeah. So basically, we we do do that portion in the commercial kitchen, but then we we measure it with enough space to add the alcohol into uh, plastics uh, recyclable jugs. And so we'll say there's a sticker that we put on the side that says add X number of ounces or 1.5 or 1.75 liters or 750s. And we have space for both of those because obviously people are ordering different size bottles um, of whatever product it is. Uh, and then it'll say shake or shake or you know pour directly over ice. And then it'll say garnish with an X, you know, garnish with a lime wheel, you know, orange twist, whatever it is. So um, the reason there's multiple reasons we didn't want to add the alcohol prior. Firstly, I just don't even want to get into dealing with the insurance and the legality around transporting alcohol. Just, I mean, I'm just totally disinterested in that aspect. But um, also, with this particular clientele, spirits companies are going to acquire their alcohol in a bunch of different ways. They could bring it in, uh, depending on the venue, they might order it through the venue. Catering companies, again, another uh, section of our clientele, typically have their preferred brands that they use anyway. And so it doesn't make any sense for me to say, you must use these six brands because that's what we offer, even though they've already got their costs calculated Mm -hmm. for their menus that they propose with their existing brands. So it just seemed like, okay, this is the hard part of it, doing the correct proportions and ensuring that it's easy to complete the batch. But it's literally, I mean, we have a number of clients who regularly have their promo people, just, you know, people who are not not cocktail they don't have cocktail backgrounds who literally are just adding the batch there and then they can either again they can just shake and pretty much everybody can shake a shaker tin (laughs) right or again they can pour directly over ice and we you know we are able to add dilution ahead of time should the client desire that mixing part a with part b exactly and producing a nice result which is which is really interesting to have and it kind of turns you know the showmanship of of having a, a good product there a good cocktail something different and you know i we haven't really mentioned the word craft cocktail mm-hmm. but essentially that's what's being created that that word i don't know why it gets Loaded. at me a little bit yeah <laughs> yeah craft car- cocktail uh-huh. it's the artisanal olive oil mm-hmm. of 2016 mm-hmm. 15 well that's i mean it, just to go off on a little bit of a tangent it is interesting when when you kind of talk about batch cocktails versus craft or you know do these two things overlap Um, you know, I always have this conversation, certainly with my beginner students, that if you're looking for a way to elevate your cocktails from, you know, mediocre to very good or from good to very, very good, fresh juice is really the way to go. And obviously you're not going to be using fresh juice in a straight spirits cocktail like a Manhattan or an old fashioned. Um, but really I can assure you that most of America does not use fresh juices when they're making cocktails. Right. So that's already a great starting point. Um, But it's also interesting because this idea of batching, it's not just for events. Pretty much any, I'm trying to think if there's any exceptions that I know of. I would say most, most craft cocktail places that I know batch some portion of the elements that they use in their drinks. Because I personally believe we are at this point where people want the highest quality product, but they also don't, they literally don't want to wait 20 minutes to get their drink. And so, for example, some institutions batch just the bitter. So let's just say you're in a specific recipe, you're using a single dash or a dash and a half uh, of three different types of bitters. They'll batch those beforehand and then just do three dashes of that batched bitters. So there's ways that you can batch elements of it without 
batching perishable items with non-perishable items, for example. Um, but again, the intention is to get the highest quality product to the guest as quickly as possible. Um, so point just, point just being is, uh, I think craft is a little bit of a slippery word, but certainly... What, it, what does it mean? Like, what is being implied with craft cocktail? Or is it is it an open... Is it a bit of a vague definition? I mean, I think most of these things are vague definitions. Yeah. You know, like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, quote-unquote, craft cocktail bartenders <laughs> who hate the term mixologist, although it's a very old term. It's not just something that somebody coined recently, right? So, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what I would say is it probably alludes to use of artisanal products, uh, using, being, being educated on um, classic techniques and preparation, um, you know, high attention to detail, Again, the intention being that you produce a uh, delicious beverage for the guest as the as the outcome. Um, But it's interesting, too, because I've been and of course, I pay attention to kind of industry news. And there's a lot of people who are who are predicting that in 2016, there's going to be more of attention, more, excuse me, more attention to hospitality, because there's been this kind of like notion that craft cocktail bars have. (laughs) <laughs> you know, they're just very snobby and unaccepting. And so people want to see, they still want to see the highest quality drink, but in the context of having this really great uh, hospitality experience as well. Um, so again, I think there's a whole bunch of different components. And so maybe at the end of next year, what we see is people say craft cocktails are delicious cocktails that are produced in an environment that's hospitable and welcoming. <laughs> you know, I mean, it could change that much. The the reputation of the Brooklyn server. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Difficult and ornery. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, is there, do you have, I mean, 20 years of experience, do you mm-hmm. have any pet peeves when you go into a bar? Things that you see? Um, yeah, I would say that my number one pet peeve, and I actually think, so back way at the beginning of this of this process, so this is probably like seven months ago, I was on Damon Bolte's show, The Speakeasy, also on Heritage Radio Network, and I think I mentioned this pet peeve then too, but um, I really, really hate it when people say, when you walk in as a solo even if you even if you're meeting people there if you walk in by yourself when people say just one because then you know it just makes you kind of feel bad even if you've got a you know whole troop of people coming in it just makes you feel less welcome so that's certainly that's one um beyond that i think it's pretty it just depends on the situation um so no i would say besides that no that's very Do you? diplomatic <laughs> i'm trying to think I you know I don't have any specific bar. I'm I'm trying to think of like bar habits mm-hmm. or, um, but it it really comes down to the yeah to the hospitality and the the interaction with mm-hmm. the staff and and what's going on. Um, but you know in the, in the world of of you know beverage and cocktails, there's certain ways to do, you know, um, make a drink. Certain mm-hmm. certain recipes that shouldn't be deviate from i was actually speaking with um damon not too long Mm -hmm. ago and we were just talking about uh his pet peeves as a bartender i think uh you know someone coming in and not looking at the menu and Mm -hmm. then just ordering their regular drink Mm -hmm. and it's a you know it's not that you can't have your your normal drink Mm -hmm. but it is you know what's the point of seeking out a different place or or an interesting menu if it's not going to be considered or Mm -hmm enjoyed yeah i i i mean i could see both sides of that i guess like i i am somebody that i'm sometimes i want a change of scenery but you know i might want 
but you still want your drink. Maybe I want my Miller High Life. I don't know, <laughs> you know. Um, so I don't personally have, um, you know, have an issue with that. I'm just trying to think from like from my bartender perspective. Oh, this this is a, this is probably totally illegitimate as a as a as a as a grape. But when I was bartending, I did kind of take issue when people would say they would come in and they wouldn't look at the menu and they would say, "Make me something special." And then you say, oh, you know, on the menu or off the menu, and they say off the menu. And this is, so for example, the last place that I bartended, I was part, I was bartending part-time at Booker and Dax. Dave Arnold also um, has a show here, Cooking Issues. He's the uh, the owner and the, um, the brain behind that. But um, that would happen where, because his methodology is so rigorous, you know, we'd spend weeks doing every iteration. Yeah, if you guys aren't familiar with Booker and Dax, maybe you want to give a little background on the concept of that bar, because it's... It's a little bit different than right. Another an average corner bar. Uh, Dave Arnold is the author of Liquid Intelligence. Also, yep. mm-hmm. it's a really, I guess, I would say, chemistry approach. Yeah, like I would say, or process yeah, driven, technically and method driven um, cocktail bar. Uh, it's on Thirteenth uh, Street and Second Avenue in uh, in Manhattan, and yeah, it's. I mean, the precision is unparalleled in the industry. So, you know, many of the recipes call for like two drops of saline, for example. Um, and there's like, again, the, the various types of methods using, you know, liquid nitrogen uh, to chill glasses down so the stem doesn't get cold, but the bowl of the glass does. Like these elements are very unusual in this industry. And so one of the things that he would have us do is, again, for each recipe, everybody on the team would taste it. And then you would go and do try other method, other methods of flavor extraction to get the optimal, um, again, end product. And so that was definitely something that I would take issue with when people would say, ah, make me something special when I, I definitely want to make them something special, but the chances of me just whooping something out and coming up with something better on the spot was unlikely because again, there's so much time and effort that went into every recipe that's on that menu and they do a phenomenal job. Um, so again, I have the utmost respect for them. And again, I don't, I don't actually blame the guests for it at all. They definitely want something special, but they just, I think the folks who would ask for that just didn't understand that there was that much effort <laughs> that went into the development. Yeah. So. It, it's not, it's not a fault of theirs, but there is a lot of consideration that goes sure. into a beverage program that I think if you don't have experience in the restaurant industry yes. and you don't have experience at bars, you don't realize yes. that this is, you know, yeah. really considered. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the times, especially as Americans who with, without a strong, you know, uh, cultural you know food foundation or you know it's not it's not like europe where for centuries you know something has been made this way Mm -hmm. uh there's a lack of understanding or you know consideration Mm -hmm. i think for what we're drinking which is Mm -hmm. what has been the Mm -hmm. what i've known of the craft movement in the last five years it's really just kind of been a a new consideration Mm -hmm. of what we're what we're what we're drinking, what we're enjoying with food, pairing, totally, all of that. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I find to be really interesting, and and um, obviously you and I had spoken about this a little bit off the air, but you know, for me, this is like a, a constantly, iter- you know, it's an iterative process. It's a constantly evolving concept as a, as a as a business. Um, I'm really interested in what's going on in the food world right now. So, for example, like food tech 
um, like meal delivery. So um, like HelloFresh and Blue Apron and Marley Spoon and a whole bunch of these other guys, they are really doing something super interesting. They're taking like a very analog uh, product or industry like food. Again, you need a certain amount of time to grow certain produce and and to raise animals. Um, They're taking this and they're expediting people's access to it or they're improving that entire experience around acquiring that food product. So I think that's super interesting. And in my dream world, this is a direction that Swig and Swallow will go in. I'm really interested in, again, how this works with, with consumers, not just business to business, and understanding that there's you know risks and, and potential pitfalls there as well. But I am really interested in saying, well, what if you know, all these people who are drinking drinks, but are ordering the, again, high fructose corn syrup, ready to serve, whatever cocktail, you know, what if all of these people had access to, again, fresh ingredients, and maybe it's something where it's, we source locally whenever possible, you know, so serving the New York area, it's like, we have on a weekly basis, or on a monthly basis, we have, you know, five different classic cocktails that you can always order and then maybe two or three signature cocktails that were highlighting the uh you know a local farm that's providing i don't know empire state is obviously known for apples so you know wh- whatever that product is apples is actually a horrible example because um uh, providing fresh apple Tri-star juice. Star strawberries but yeah yeah let's just say let's just say i didn't use that as an example um but the point is is that there's there could be a really interesting opportunity to actually provide very light education and and exposure to again the the uh the environment around us and the and the food systems around us so i'm really interested in in exploring you know, exploring if that is an option um, for what we're doing. I remember a conversation that you and I had months back uh, when I first met you and, and was introduced to this idea mm-hmm. was uh, that everything that you make can be enjoyed with or without mm-hmm. alcohol. Mm-hmm. So it's not it's not strictly you know a, a booze delivery service, sure. but it's it's stand you know mm-hmm. standalone good. Yep. So. Yeah, this is one I a little bit lost that battle to myself. Um, not, not that I'm not interested in doing that, but so so what I was trying to do before, and this was again when I came on Damon's show, I was talking about craftmocktails.com, which was my other project, which was like it was not a money making project; it was just me uh, coming up with different mocktail recipes and styling them as cocktails um, and and executing them. So sh- you know, shaking them or muddling or whatever, as you would a normal standard cocktail and just really trying to say, okay, a, a mocktail is not just a margarita without tequila. Right. So I was exploring with that a lot. Um, and the, one of the challenges that I came with came uh, that I came onto um, is that with all of these, with pretty much every classic cocktail that has juice in it, there is a counterpart, like a sweet counterpart to mm-hmm. that. And so I haven't found the optimal sweet component that is the best for you. Cause I'm actually as a personal interest, I'm very health driven. Um, I, I haven't found the optimal way to incorporate a sweet element and make it a really balanced cocktail and make it really healthy for you. Um, so I have kind of like two lives right now. One is where I'm making, you know, juicing all of these, you know, vegetable uh, and and fruit juices. And then I'm also making cocktails that have more standard ratios with, again, sours ratios. So spirit, yeah. citrus, sweet component, and then various other flavoring elements. Um, I just thought it was a very interesting approach to have 
essentially an, an ingredient-driven drink, you mm-hmm. know, and because when you're trying, you're developing things as standalones, and then using those ingredients also, fr- like like you said, fresh squeeze. That's not something that you had before mm-hmm. or someone doing at home. Mm-hmm. Well, there's, I mean, there's a bunch of different ways I think you could also look at getting both of the intention of getting nutritionally rich juices to the clientele, as well as what would be considered to be delicious, balanced, um, crowd pleasing. That's just (laughs) maybe the best way to say crowd pleasing cocktails. So there's a few different ways to, to, to look at that one you'll see again i think media is always looking for different ways to blow up uh different trends and so you'll see a lot of people saying health cocktail and it's a normal cocktail with like kale juice in it right so that's so that's one yeah does that need to exist <sighs> can we know. accept our know. vices for just being not everything has to be you know it, it's okay for something to be delicious so that that is i i think that's why i kind of like lost the battle to myself when I was debating both sides of this. One thing I did think about is, so should I launch to consumers, which I do hope to do in the very near future, um, should I launch to consumers and should there be a subscription model, which I'm still not convinced is the best direction to go in. But if there, if that were the case, I've been approached by a ton of people who have office parties every single week and they say, you know, it's not, I want to work at that office. I know. I know. I know. And, and, <laughs> and in, in fairness, many of these have been like catering companies, right? Okay. So they have a tie in to this world already. Um, but it did occur to me that it could be kind of cool to just test out the idea of saying, okay, your subscription is Monday you receive, you know, fresh cold pressed juices for the office. So everyone starts off on a really like, you know, energized note. And then Friday the delivery is, you know, the, the batch for your cocktails. So I'm not sure either. <laughs> I just have no idea. Working through ideas. That's, yeah, exactly. that's the challenge, the struggle and the excitement of mm-hmm. starting a new business and, you know, being an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go ahead and take a quick break and yeah. then we'll be back to talk more beverage with April Wachtel. If I say three words, let's say Brooklyn, classic, food, you tell me what comes to mind. I'll give you a second. If the answer wasn't juniors, you lose the game. You can't possibly be a Brooklyn foodie, or a foodie at all for that matter, and not know about juniors. Founded by Harry Rosen in 1950, Junior's landmark restaurant is known as the home of New York's best cheesecake. Real talk, you have not fully lived unless you've had Junior's Cheesecake. The original location in Brooklyn on Flatbush Avenue is still thriving, or you can check them out at recent landmark additions in New York's Grand Central Terminal or in the heart of the theater district on Broadway and Times Square. Check out their first restaurant outside of New York at the Fox Tower Hotel at Foxwoods Casino in Connecticut. It's not just cheesecakes. They've got steak, seafood, sandwiches, salad, everything you would possibly need to complete an authentic New York dining experience. Don't be embarrassed next time somebody asks you if you've been to Junior's. Visit juniorscheesecake.com for more information. 
Welcome back to the main course. I'm Alexis McLaughlin. We are here with April Wachtel. Uh, we are talking about beverage, drinks, booze, cocktails. Also, uh, she's founder and CEO of Swig and Swallow. So kind of going into, you know, the challenges of getting a new business off the ground. That really brings me to something that I wanted to ask you earlier. How How is it abandoning an idea? How does that, it's got to hurt a little bit to, you know, think about a trajectory, want to go somewhere and then just it, it doesn't work out. The market just doesn't need or isn't looking for that thing mm-hmm. right now. You know, that's you just were talking about, you know, the iterative nature. Yeah. Um, well, I would say that. So the so the, I guess a little background. So the craft mocktails was where this idea started. And I think it was easier. It was easy for me to start that and with the, never having the intention of making it a profitable business. It was just experimentation. Um, because again, I personally was not sold on all the aspects of this project. Even though I think there's value there, I wasn't sold that it was the right idea. So I think had I, had I launched that with the intention of making money and then it didn't work, that, work out, I'm sure I would have felt crushed. <laughs> you know, like, that sucks. Um, but because it kind of, like, a couple of elements of that project folded into this one, that has been great. Um, and it doesn't feel like a loss. It just feels like, like the, the starting point. Yeah. Um, I would say that, uh, you know, when I started Swig and Swallow, I was, I, I, I definitely underestimated, even though I've not invested that much money in this, I underestimated how much money you should have to start a business. Like you really, I'm, I'm a thousand percent sure you need a bunch of money to make, <laughs> to make less money than you started off with. Like I'm quite convinced of this. Um, so I, I think that my, my assumption about how quickly I would just be rolling in the dough <laughs> was like definitely off. Um, and so I, I don't, I, I can't actually see this particular thing failing in the near future because there is demand for it. It's just, mm-hmm. is there enough demand to justify my time? Is the, is, I think that is the question that you're probably referencing and that everybody who ever starts a business has to think about. Um, and so I think for this, again, I know that there's demand. I know that I am really excited about where this has evolved to thus far and where it's going. Um, so I would say that if I work on this for another year and I just feel like it's not ultimately as worth my time as I thought it was when I started, then that's something that I'm going to have to just have that honest conversation with myself and just say, you know what, it's going to be time to move on. Um, but in the moment it feels, it feels, it still feels right. Yeah. And, but, you know, the flexibility of being able to kind of, you know, not change direction 180, mm-hmm. but be able to just kind of, you know, move, move around and, and, and follow the trends and, and respond mm-hmm. to the feedback that you're getting. Because it's so often you have an idea and, and if for a stubborn person, it can be very difficult to let mm-hmm. go to to not see that as a failure Mm -hmm. when it's not necessarily a failure, but it could just be feedback that you can do something better or change the direction. Right. You know, just, just slightly where you're going. So we talked about this a little before, but I've watched way too much shark tank, right? (laughs) Like it's not actually good for me for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, but one of the things that you, 
do hear come up in their conversations all the time is resiliency and stubbornness and frankly, kind of unrealistic optimism. Like if you're an entrepreneur, by by definition, you're doing something that has not been done before or has not been done that well before. There's something that's in theory distinguishing you from from other people, right? And that means that it's, it is untested. And that means that there is a likelihood you're going to fail and you're going to have to confront that. And I think when you look at successful entrepreneurs, like I know you had um, Greg from Tesmes. Oh, yeah. Where he was saying he was just really freaking stubborn and he just would not give up. And I think that's something that like, I can definitely be a sensitive person. Um, but I also am like incredibly resilient. So like I might get upset about something, but then in like 10 minutes, I'm like, well, I got to move on. You know? <laughs> um, so I think that that is like, you have to have that or else you will never, you'll never pursue your idea. Cause none of this stuff is in theory easy. Yeah. You know? And if you knew better, that's what I always joke with heritage. If if we knew better, right. <laughs> if we were thinking about it right. from an intelligent place, we wouldn't be doing this. Right. But it's it's the passion right. that has kept it kept it going. And that's I mean, frankly, that's the that's the exciting thing too. Yeah. Right. And that's I think when you know, when I left my last couple of jobs, I was really I, I was fortunate in both of those jobs I was working with Bacardi and then a, um, a company called Solveso. Um I was really fortunate in both of those context to be able to test out ideas that I had, um, because people, you know, believed in me or because they didn't have better alternatives or, you know, whatever it was. Like, I don't <laughs> even know. That. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but that was really great because I get, I, I got to have ideas and say, well, this is, I think this translates, or I think this interprets like the brand, um, image or strategy really well. And therefore I'm going to throw this event, um, in this particular way. And so that was, that was really great. Uh, and that I think gave me a lot of confidence that I could do this on my own as well. Um, and the interesting added element here is that since I haven't raised money for this whatsoever, um, and since I've between this and the other consulting work that I do, that's been, you know, this has been my livelihood. It's not like a trust fund baby. Right. Um, so I've been making this work as a, as a financial option for myself as well. That forces you to become really creative and, again, hopefully derive a lot of joy from the learning that comes with this as well, you know, because if you didn't, you'd be screwed. Yeah. <laughs> the tough learning. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, why don't you tell everyone where they can find you if they're interested in kind of, you know, exploring this idea a little bit more, uh, getting in contact with Swig and Swallow if you have an upcoming party. Yes. So, um, all right. So my contact is April at Swig, A-N-D, Swallow.com. I would also love if anyone has any ideas um, or who who wants this as a consumer, it would be amazing if you could just tweet at me. Um, my uh, Twitter handle is April underscore Wachtel, which is W-A-C-H-T-E-L. Um, also, if you have Instagram, I started just a, about a week ago, I started a little social media campaign just trying to kind of connect the dots for people between batches that we provide and what this actually looks like in cocktail form. So if you're on Instagram, uh, it's swig, A-N-D, swallow, uh, is the, is the handle there. And it'd be awesome if you again could comment or follow me, that'd be great too. Um, or if you have just stuff to share, I of course love to see that stuff as well. Um, but that's my contact info and the website is swig and swallow.com. 
Awesome. Great. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was awesome. I look forward to talking to you again. Hopefully we'll have you back on in the next uh, next season and kind of check back in and, and see where it's yeah. at. And we should bring some cocktails for the studio. Yes. Yes, absolutely. We. I actually should have told you that for um, for Emily Peterson's Sharp and Hot, I actually did make a couple of cocktails on air with the batch. So <laughs> Perfect. next time. Yeah. Yeah. Liz will, Liz will enjoy it. Um, thank you so much for listening. Uh, I know we're outside of our donation uh, this season, but it was a very successful year. Uh, if You can always donate to Heritage Radio Network, which is a member-sustained organization. Uh, just go to the heart at the top of the page. Um, and thank you guys so much for listening. Happy Sunday. program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.